Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. We welcome all of you who are here this morning in our gymnasium for our pastor's Bible class. We welcome all who are listening on KFUO 850 AM, and we welcome all who are listening from afar on KFUO.org worldwide. Uh, I want to begin by wishing everybody a happy and blessed epiphany, uh, sometimes referred to as the Christmas for the Gentiles, the Gentiles uh, in the Magi uh, coming to worship the newborn King Jesus Christ. And uh, Christians around the world are doing the very same thing on this day. So we welcome all of you here today. Today, however, we're not going to be looking at Epiphany. We're going to be looking at the lessons for next Sunday, the three lessons that are prescribed or assigned for next Sunday in our three-year lectionary series. Uh, for those of us that are here in the gymnasium, there are sheets over on the side uh, that contain those lessons, and uh, we'll be announcing what they are as we go. But before that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that on this day of Epiphany, we remember the coming of the wise men, the Magi, to worship the newborn King, Jesus Christ, and how you made known to them his birth and all that he would do. We thank you also for making these same things known to us, that through the waters of holy baptism, your spirit has brought us to that same Savior, Jesus Christ, created faith in us in him and washed away all of our sin and made us heirs of everlasting life. We thank you also for your word that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of all of this and of your will for us as your children. We pray your Holy Spirit's guidance and blessing upon us today as we study that same word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, next Sunday, we're going to be starting the Sundays in Epiphany. Next Sunday, we'll, the theme or the real emphasis, as you will see, will be on baptism. Because next Sunday, the gospel lesson is the baptism of our Lord, the baptism of Jesus, uh, in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, of course. Although, as we'll see uh, in Luke's account, there isn't a whole lot of information about John and, the, and all those things. We'll get to that. But the, uh, uh, certainly in, in most all of our churches, I think the theme will be one of baptism and looking not only at Christ's baptism, but of course, uh, the blessing of our own baptism and what God did for us in and through baptism. So with that as sort of a, a backdrop, let's take a look on the sheet there and we'll see, first of all, the collect of the day certainly uh, announces this to us, I guess you would say. Uh, remember, the collect is that prayer that usually is, is right before the scripture readings are read. It's, it's uh, usually after the confession and absolution and just prior to the scripture readings. And it's called a collect because it, it does just that. It collects, you might say, the main theme or themes for that day and uh, offers them in the, in the form of a prayer in a very concise way. So the collect for next Sunday, Father in heaven, at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, well, there's an obvious connection to the gospel lesson that's going to be coming, you proclaimed him your beloved son and anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Make all who are baptized in his name faithful in their calling 
as your children and inheritors with him of everlasting life. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And that's the classic form of a collect. It begins, notice, notice, by either praising God or recounting something that God has done. In this case, the baptism of Christ in the Jordan and the proclamation by the Father that he is uh, his beloved son, the anointing with the Spirit. And then right after that, notice, it asks something. It, it makes a petition on our behalf. So this is a classic form of a collect. So when you see the collects in church, that's usually the, the pattern that they will take. All right? Now, let's take a look, first of all, at the Old Testament lesson, which is perhaps not as clearly connected with baptism. We'll point out a couple of things here, as in some of the other uh, years of the three-year series. But we'll look at Isaiah 43. Now, just a little background here. Isaiah is written about 700 years before Christ will walk this earth, so about 700 or so uh, B.C. And in the history of God's people, some, in, some dates that are always important to kind of keep in, the, in our thinking are, first of all, in 722, so right around this time, a little bit before, uh, the northern kingdom is overtaken. God raises up the Assyrian nation and overtakes the northern kingdom. And we really don't hear a lot about the northern kingdom after that. They are just decimated. The Assyrians continue uh, after that to uh, cause all kinds of trouble for God's people. There's a lot of history there, which we just don't have the time to go into. But in 586, that's another big date, the southern kingdom is taken over. Not by Assyria now, but by the Babylonians. God raises up Babylon, and, and the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians. Now the Babylonians come, and they are God's instrument to bring judgment to his people. Uh, even though 586 is the year that Jerusalem itself was sacked and the temple was destroyed, many of God's people were carted off into slavery. But actually, even before that, there had been a lot of... of uh, battle and God's people uh, being attacked by the Babylonians. In fact, as early as 605 is the year we think that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken off into captivity in Babylon. So it, 586 is when the curtain finally comes down. So God's people are going to be off in captivity in Babylon. They will eventually come back in 539 B.C., Cyrus is going to be the new ruler in Persia. The Persians are going to overtake the Babylonians. And in 538, only one year after he's been in office, Cyrus issues the Edict of Cyrus, allowing God's people to return uh, to Jerusalem and to rebuild. So in the midst of all of this, Isaiah writes about 700 B.C., and he has a message that is both one of judgment for God's people, that there's going to be judgment coming in the form of the Babylonians, but then also, and this is our lesson, a message of hope and restoration. And so God's people are going to be going off into captivity with these words from the prophet Isaiah in their ears and probably also in their hearts and in their minds. And... If you stop and think about it, how are God's people perhaps going to feel when they are in captivity in Babylon? You're, you're completely defeated as a people. 
Your temple is destroyed. You've, you've been carted off, the brightest and the best in, in particular, were carted off to Babylon. How might God's people uh, be feeling uh, about this point in time? Deserted, yeah. All alone, right? Has God deserted us, right? I mean, that would be a, that would be a natural question. Has God abandoned us, you know? And so you get this word of comfort and restoration. Uh, we had it actually, for those of you that were at the early service today, we had it in the, in the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah, chapter 60, this morning, uh, that here at uh, St. Paul's Pastor Thompson preached on. But it's, it's God, again, not only bringing the law to his people, but especially also the gospel and a feeling of restoration, a promise to them that that they are not alone, that he will restore, he will renew them. And, of course, that is fulfilled eventually for his people in the Old Testament and to an even greater extent in Jesus Christ, it is fulfilled in us as well. Okay? And uh, so with that, uh, that's maybe too much background, but that's some background anyway. Uh, let's take a look at uh, our lesson then, Isaiah 43, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Okay? So starting off, uh, let's just read verse 7 first of all here. Or, I'm sorry, verse 1 here. But now says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. All right. So, but now. All right. So when, whenever a verse begins, but now, or but it's probably in contrast to what came before it, right? And what came before this, we won't read it, but the end of Isaiah 42, or uh, that the last section, is a section of judgment and a section of condemnation of God's people uh, for their idolatry. And so, so chapter 43 now starts the positive, but now, okay? Thus says the Lord, and you know, we often just glide right over this, what doctrine does this prove or does this uh, accentuate when we read a prophet in the Old Testament and it says, thus says the Lord, what doctrine does that bring to our mind? The fact that the scriptures are what? The words of God. Yeah, the inspired word of God. This isn't Isaiah's sort of musings and his ideas, but he's not speaking his own word. He's speaking the word of the Lord. We often glide right over that, but... The Old Testament is filled with this. Notice there, he who created you, so he's, he's referring back here, Isaiah is, to the, uh, God's work of creation. You sort of get the idea that God's going to do a new creation now with his people, right? He's going to bring them back uh, from their captivity. He's going to create a new people, uh, or create them anew, you might say, at this point. Uh, and Jacob, of course, and Israel are quite a sort of synonyms. They're often used to refer to God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, the idea of the covenant going all the way back to Jacob, well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but in this case, Jacob, uh, who is named Israel in the Old Testament. Notice there a reference to how God formed them, God created them. We think about God calling them to be his people. And then what is the message he has for them now? Fear not. Fear not. In the midst of everything that they are going to experience, fear not. And you know, when I was reading this, I was thinking, what are some of the, uh, the words that Jesus, the first words that Jesus spoke to his disciples after he 
rose from the dead. He comes to them that are afraid behind locked doors, remember, for fear of the Jews. What does he say? Peace be with you. Okay? Same sort of thing. You know, it's standing in the face of God and we fear not, or we are at peace with him, not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done for us. So the same sort of thing here. Even though they're going to go off into captivity, fear not. Why? I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you. Now, in the old, what does it mean to redeem something? Well, to buy it back. Yeah, purchase it. Buy it back with a price. And we talk about Jesus as our redeemer, of course, paying uh, for us with his own blood, his own life on the cross. And notice here God says, I have redeemed you. Now, this word actually in the Old Testament refers to a, um, a, a special kind of uh, uh, arrangement that God had. If someone wronged your family, there was a, a rule, and, and the, we won't have the time to look at it, but there was an avenger of blood who in your family could go and avenge that wrongdoing that had happened. And the word actually here in the Old Testament is that. So in other words, if somebody came and attacked my family, uh, if I was, I think it was the eldest son, uh, was usually the one who was the avenger of blood, the goel in the Old Testament, and could go and he's the only one, seek uh, retribution uh, from whoever the wronged one was. God here has said, I am your goel. I am the one who has avenged the wrong, okay? And so I have bought you back. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Notice here, who is doing all the work? God is, right? I have redeemed you. I have called you. Can the same be said for us? Yes. God has redeemed us through his son, Jesus Christ. He has called us. Where's God called us in our baptism, of course, and that's the the theme for the day, remember, don't lose sight of that. So the same thing can be said for us. And uh, then going on, we're going to see a new promise now that God is giving uh, in verses 2 through 4. So starting at verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Well, Let's stop for a moment. When you pass through the waters, that's got a little bag, that phrase got a little baggage connected with it. When did God's people pass through the waters and God did a saving act for them? Okay, the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. God delivers them from their slavery. They pass through the waters, remember, on dry ground. Uh, That's how thoroughly God had separated the waters. And then remember when the Egyptian soldiers who are pursuing God's people come into that on that dry ground, remember God brings the waters down, saves them from their slavery in Egypt. Any connection to what happens in baptism? God, it doesn't part waters, but we pass through the waters in a sense in our baptism and God saves us, doesn't he? From our slavery to sin, death, and the grave, and we are freed from it, okay? Then, of course, we cannot forget 
in the book of uh, Joshua that when else do the people of God pass through some, dry, some waters on dry ground into a promised land? Yeah, the Jordan River. When they, uh, remember, uh, Joshua then parts the waters of the Jordan River. Joshua doesn't do it. God does it through Joshua. Parts the waters of the Jordan, and the people of God pass through on dry ground. Again, comparison to baptism. That through baptism, we are brought into the promised land, aren't we? Not, not fully yet in the sense that uh, this side of heaven, but it is given to us. And God, again, through the waters of baptism. So there's, when God says this, again, to his people, they can't help but think back to these references of how, again, he parted the waters. You know, when you pass through the waters, the idea, I'm going to be with you. Okay, as he was in the uh, past. Uh, I will be with you. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about him being with them in just a second. And through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. Okay, so nothing's going to, in, in, a, in a real literal sense, they're not going to be harmed by water. Or when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. This is a bit of a mystery because we don't have any example of God's people walking through fire uh, in the Old Testament. So we normally take this to mean, you know, any kind of natural disaster, anything from water on the one hand to fire at the complete opposite, God's going to be protecting them through this entire experience, okay? Nothing will harm them because of his presence, okay? He will keep them safe. He will keep them in his care. Then verse 3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Uh, anybody recall when in Exodus chapter 3 when God calls Moses and uh, Moses has got every excuse in the book for not, for not obeying God's command? You know, I'm, I'm slow of speech. Uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll give you somebody to speak for you. Uh, when, I go, when I go to the people and ask them, uh, and say that, you know, uh, God has sent me, and they ask, well, what's his name? Uh, what should I say? And remember, what's God's response? I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. Well, look at how this verse starts. For I am the Lord, your God. So that calls to mind again, if they're listening, calls to mind again, way back when he delivered them from their slavery, calling Moses to do that, okay? Uh, the Holy One of Israel, so the, uh, of you, and notice there the big word, your Savior. I am the one who has saved you, okay? Uh, uh, first, uh, next, I will, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Uh, it's kind of interesting. It's almost as if God is saying here, I'm paying a price for you, and a part of that price is going to be Egypt, uh, and then Cush and Seba are just sort of uh, extensions of Egypt. We think in the northern Africa, over where, around where Ethiopia is. And again, it's a hard verse to interpret. We're thinking here is God saying, I'm going to, and he did, he let the Persians overtake uh, the Egyptians. In other words, is God saying, I'm going to give Egypt as a, as a price for you to redeem you or to buy you back. Uh, could certainly uh, be that. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. 
Boy, what a what a three phrases together, right? You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Wow. After all they had done, right, in worshiping the false gods, going after all the gods of the Canaanites, and they're going to be taken over, notice there what God says to them. Those, those, we, how, they're precious in his sight. And, you know, I think that's an important thing for us to remember as well, uh, that we are precious in his sight in spite of our own sinfulness, in spite of the fact that daily we sin in thought, word, and deed, we are precious in the sight of God. How do we're precious in the sight of God? Okay, well, it says so, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's number one. Secondly, how do, we know, how do we know we're precious? He sent his son, right? I mean, uh, that is proof positive. And, you know, and I've often said, uh, if you ever doubt that God loves you or cares about you, look no further than the cross, right? When you see how much there God loves you, that he would send, first of all, that which is most precious to him, his own son. We're going to see in the gospel lesson what he says about his son, and would allow that son to give his life up for us. And I think that that, uh, it's not because there's anything special in us, but in a way that we can't understand and we will never deserve, we are precious in the sight of God, and he loves us. And, and we never want to lose track of that or lose sight of that uh, in our own lives. And then, uh, as he says there, I love you. Okay? Uh, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Is he talking there again about the Egyptians, maybe even the Babylonians, because they're going to be taken over by Persia? Again, we just don't know for sure. But notice God is paying the price here for his people, just as he does in Christ. Right? Then, uh, verses 5 through 7, we see sort of a new gathering of God's people, a gathering together. Now, remember, why is this important? Because in their captivity, they are not gathered together as a people. They are a scattered people, and God is going to gather them together. Again, uh, in, in today's Old Testament lesson in church, for those of you that were there or those that are going to be worshiping uh, 1045 here, take, uh, listen to, again, Isaiah 60. You get this same sort of gathering. I'm going to gather my people together. Okay? So he says here, Fear not. For I am with you. I will bring your offspring. Notice there, not necessarily them, but their offspring. This is after the captivity now. Uh, from the east and from the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Okay? Now, those first words, fear not, I am with you. Now, the fear not, notice, is repeated from verse 1, right? We talked about that before. It's repeated again. But now, what is the reason that they are not to fear? Is it just sort of, well, have courage, dig in your heels, be, uh, be courageous? What's the reason they are not to fear? 
He is with them, right? Fear not, next words, I, for I am with you. It's the presence of God with us that takes away the fear, right? Uh, you can almost hear an echo of Psalm 23 there, right? Uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Are there times in our lives where that presence of God or the assurance of God's presence with us takes away fear also? I'm thinking of one, well, a couple in particular. When might be a time when, when we hear we want to be reassured of God's presence with us? Sickness, death. You know, when you're in the hospital, I don't know how many of you have had been in the hospital and had surgery or anything like that, but you know, there's that point where you're, you know, you're, you're laying on the gurney. I, I had, this is rather minor, of course, in comparison, but had knee surgery back when I was a senior in high school, and this is before they had all the orthoscopic uh, uh, techniques that they do today. And you know, there's that point where you're laying on the gurney there, and you're looking up at the, at the ceiling, and they're going to they're gonna administer that anesthesia, right? And boy, that's a, that's a time, a good time to remember that fear not, why? The Lord is near, you know, or the guy I'm with you, that sort of thing. So we always, uh, many times when we make hospital calls as pastors, we want to remind people of that, that, you know, just like the people who have gone into captivity in Babylon, when someone is seriously ill, there might be that temptation to think, has God left me? Has God abandoned me here? I'm all alone. And we want to reassure people, no, not at all. God's promise is to be with you. And so fear not or be at peace. He is with you. And then notice then again the promise of this gathering. God is going to gather his people together. Now, in the ultimate sense, we might say, first of all, Christ came to this earth, right? We just celebrated and gathered his people together. He starts off with a motley crew of the 12, right? and goes around and is preaching and gathers people together. He then sends the Holy Spirit, as he promised, at Pentecost, and there is a huge growth in the church and a gathering, a collecting of people together. Uh, the word actually for church is a word uh, in Greek that we have probably heard before, ekklesia. We sometimes, it's where we get the word ecclesiastical, and that's the ones who are called out, or the ones who are called together and pulled out uh, from amongst the world. Although we don't leave the world, we're in the world, but not of the world. But finally, when is the ultimate time that God is going to gather his people together? On Judgment Day, or the last day, right? When he will gather, he will gather together all whom he has called by his name, right? All whom he has made wise on the salvation. And it will be when his son returns and that bodily resurrection takes place. And from the east, the west, the north, and the south, God's people are gathered together. So you might say, first of all, it was fulfilled when he gathered his people together and brought them back to Jerusalem. It's kind of fulfilled again when Christ comes to gather uh, the people of God together and ultimately on that last day. There will be the, you might say, the penultimate gathering of God's people together from the ends of the earth, literally, from heaven and from earth together.
Okay? And uh, notice there, everyone who is called by my name. What are we called today? Christians. Christians, right. And we are, notice there, for his people are for his glory. You might say that we are, in a sense, walking advertisements for our God, aren't we? In terms of what people see in us and hear from us. We are Christ's ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. So God receives the glory here. And notice again, he formed us and he made us. All right? So we get a couple baptismal themes here. There's all the water imagery that I mentioned before that compares to baptism. We get the idea of God calling and forming us in and through, again, the waters of baptism, recreating us, if you will, uh, through the waters of baptism. Re, we, we call baptism the uh, washing of what? Regeneration, right? Regenerating us, remaking us in the water and word of, of baptism. So God does it here through his people in captivity in Babylon. He does it in our midst and continues to do it in our midst and will until his son returns through the water and word of baptism. Okay? All right. Uh, we better stop there on this one. Uh, any comments, questions on Isaiah 43? No? All right. Let's, I want to jump to the gospel lesson then. We'll come back to Romans 6, 1 through 11 in just a, well, maybe more than a couple minutes, but uh, we'll, we'll come back to it. Uh, Luke 3. And remember, this is the year that we are in the gospel of Luke. And so we're going to be looking at Luke's account of the baptism of Jesus. There's one thing that Luke adds here that's not in the other ones. But frankly, uh, there's a couple things Luke uh, doesn't mention that are in, his, in particular in Matthew. But let's start. We're going to start at verse 15 of Luke 3. Again, the account of Jesus' baptism. But first, we've got to do a little bit with John the Baptist. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. This would be John the Baptist again, not, not the author of the gospel, but John the Baptist. Whether he might be the Christ. So kind of interesting. You know, John, from all accounts, is getting quite a following out there in the wilderness as he's preaching uh, repentance and is practicing a baptism of repentance. And what are some of the people beginning to wonder? Is he the Messiah? Is he the anointed one or not? And, of course, later on, John's going to send disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? But right here, people are beginning to wonder, is this the one or not, uh, whether he might be the anointed one? Verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, and Matthew adds here, for repentance, so I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. Now, who is that obviously a reference to? Jesus, right. His, his um, uh, cousin, I guess you would say. Uh, I guess that's right, right? Because Elizabeth is Mary's cousin. Uh, the one who is coming uh, after me is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals... I am not worthy to untie. Now, in biblical times, were the feet uh, looked upon as a, 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 a part of the body to be admired and uh, respected and so on? No. Uh, quite the opposite. In fact, 
Uh, you know, you walked in sandals, in dirt, and so on. And when you came to someone's house, it was actually good hospitality on their practice to have some water so that you might wash your feet. And even the slaves, some of the slaves were not required uh, to do that. You, in most places, did that yourself. So by John saying the, the his strap of his sandal, uh, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, what is he saying about himself in relation to Jesus? I am what? Much, much lower. I am, I am not worthy. In other words, he is emphatically denying here that he is the Christ, that he is the anointed one, right? He's not even worthy to bend down and, and uh, untie his sandals. Now, a, a bit of a conundrum here. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's saying, I'm baptizing with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. All right, we've got a couple issues here that we've got to deal with. First of all, do we have any accounts of Jesus baptizing anyone? No, we don't. And so we will say that the ministry of the apostles, who later on are going to be baptizing, and we think of what happened at Pentecost, for example, uh, it, the, the ministry of the apostles is the extension, or is Jesus' ministry extended. So in that sense, uh, they are baptizing with the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and when is the big time that the Holy Spirit came, of course? In a, in a, in a, well, let's say, I hate to say it that way, because the Holy Spirit has been operating all along, right? But when is the time he came in an extraordinary, very visible way? Pentecost, right. And what was present at Pentecost? Flames of fire on the disciples, right? Rested on them, and they end up speaking in other known languages. That is one of the interpretations of this. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Another interpretation of this is it goes back to the old idea that fire is used in the Bible many times for judgment. Uh, we think of the lake of burning fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, as Jesus said. So sometimes this is, uh, some scholars will take this to mean the Holy Spirit, meaning the faith that will create trust in Jesus Christ, or the judgment that comes as a result of rejecting and uh, not believing in Christ. In other words, fire. It's one of two things. Either it's with the Holy Spirit, faith is created, or rejection, and there is judgment, or there is fire. Could be either of those. This is a very uh, difficult verse uh, to interpret. There's no question what verse 17 is talking about, though. His, and again, who's coming? The his refers to this Jesus who is coming. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Huh. So the he is Jesus, and notice here there's a reference to the gathering of the harvest into the barn. So what is that a reference to? Judgment, the last day. So John the Baptist here is pointing not only to the fact that Jesus is coming and there's going to be a baptism with the Holy Spirit or with fire, but he's going to come another time as well. And there's going to be a gathering that takes place. 
the wheat into the barn. The winnowing fork is, I guess you'd say, the device, right, to, to do the harvest. So the winnowing fork, the wheat into the barn would be what? Christians believe, right? The harvest is put into the barn. And what would the chaff be that is thrown uh, into the, as he says there, will burn with unquenchable fire? What would the chaff be again? Unbelievers, yeah, those who reject his offer of grace and forgiveness and mercy. So again, that kind of lends credence to what I was saying just a minute ago about that Holy Spirit and fire, because the next verse talks certainly again about judgment and about fire. And uh, the Bible uses that as an image many times for, for uh, judgment, uh, this idea of fire and burning, okay? And uh, again, uh, as we have said before, there, uh, is only, there, there are only two possible positions or uh, two possible stances with regard to Christ. There is either faith and trust or there is rejection and judgment that follows. There's only the two. There's no, no in-between. Every time Jesus talks about this, there's no middle ground. There's no sort of, well, you're kind of in and you're in the middle. No, it's either one way or the other. He was not for me is against me. All right, let's go to verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he, this would be John the Baptist again, preached good news to the people, namely that the Messiah is at hand. Repent, you know, the, the Messiah is coming. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And that's the last we hear of John the Baptist in the Gospel of Luke. You kind of get the idea that he has done his mission. He has prepared the way for the coming of Christ. And we don't hear, uh, this is in Luke, we don't hear of him after this. And let's just review for a second. Uh, Herod is actually Philip. Herod Antipas, who is a son, one of four sons, of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the uh, guy who is, is the, is the uh, ruler when Jesus is born. And he is uh, just crazy. There's no other way to put it. An incredible builder of things. And when you go to Israel today, you'll see uh, many of the projects, his building projects, including Masada. And, uh, and everything, but uh, absolutely crazy. Killed uh, two of his sons, killed one of his wives. Anyway, the son, sons who survived, one of them was Herod Antipas, who is the Tetrarch of Galilee, or the ruler of a quarter of an area, and this was Galilee. Uh, Herod Antipas, this is according to Josephus, who's a first century uh, historian, uh, basically seduced away from him his brother's wife, Herodias. And the family tree of Herod is so... I, I was trying to read this yesterday. You would need a board, a diagram, just to be able to follow the family tree of Herod. Let me just tell you this. So then Herod, Herod Antipas marries Herodias his brother Philip's wife. Now, just let this sink in for a second, what I'm about to say, that 
Herodias, whom he married, was at the same time his niece and his sister-in-law. Let that sink in for a minute. His niece and his sister-in-law. We don't have the time to diagram this on the board. Okay? John the Baptist uh, objects to this marriage. And obviously Herodias is incensed against him. Herod Antipas, it seems, was very um, apprehensive about John the Baptist. And, but anyway, uh, as Luke puts it here, he, Herod added this, added this. He had done a bunch of, of bad things, evil things. And Luke says here, he added this to them. He had John the Baptist locked up. Okay. And we won't read it, but remember what eventually happens to John the Baptist after he is locked up. Uh, Herod is having a birthday party uh, for himself. And uh, he's got his military leaders there and, uh, and leaders. He asks his daughter uh, to come in and dance for them, for their entertainment. We assume it was just the men who were there at that, in that room at that time. Uh, Herod is so impressed with his daughter's dance for all of them that he says, anything you want, I will give you even up to half of my kingdom. His daughter doesn't quite know what to ask for. It's quite an open statement. Could ask for anything, even half the kingdom goes out and asks her mom, Herodias, what to ask for. And remember what does Herodias say? Ask for the head of John the Baptist. And so sure enough, comes back in, the head of John the Baptist. And uh, as it, this is in Mark, by the way. This is in Mark 12, if you want to read it sometime. Uh, he can't back down. Herod can't back down. He thinks he can't back down because he's made this open statement in front of all of his leaders, and he'll look weak and vacillating if he, if he reneges on it. So he sends somebody, and they cut off the head of John the Baptist, bring it to them on a platter. I mean, how gruesome, you know? How, how, you, you just can't imagine something like that, okay? Anyway, that's, we don't want to get too, digress too far, but that's, that's, I'm sorry, that's in Mark 6. I think I said Mark 12. Mark 6, uh, verses 14 through 29. Verse 21. So notice here, uh, this is it for John the Baptist. Verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized... Notice that Luke doesn't even say it by John the Baptist here. We're baptized. And when Jesus had been baptized, so we get none of the details here. Remember in Matthew, we get this back and forth where, where, uh, where John says to Jesus, I'm not worthy. Uh, you should be baptizing me, right? I'm not worthy to baptize you. And Jesus says, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. We don't, we don't get that in Luke. We don't get that back and forth, that, that dialogue back and forth. Here's what Luke adds. He was praying. Jesus was praying here after he had been baptized. The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Well, Notice here again, the focus is not on John the Baptist any longer. It is totally on Jesus. And this is one of at least two events, or two at least that come to my mind, where we have specific mention of the entire Trinity being present, being described as present at an event.
So here's the question. What's the other event in Scripture where we know, and we actually have to look in two different spots to find it, that the, the whole Trinity, all three persons, were present? Anybody know? Genesis, the creation of the world. You've got the Father creating, obviously. You've got the Holy Spirit what? Hovering over the waters, right? But we don't, no mention of Jesus there, per se, in Genesis. We have to go to John 1 and read there that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and a little bit lower down in John 1, that through him, through him, was everything created that was created, and nothing that was created was created without him. Okay? So those two spots. So this is an important part of the Scriptures, that God goes out of his way here and makes it known that all three persons are present here. Almost like a new creation is going to start right here, right? With Jesus being baptized and beginning his three-year earthly ministry. Almost like a whole new creation, just like we read in, in Isaiah 43, verse 1. Okay? And notice there... Uh, you get the Holy Spirit coming down in bodily form, so it's not just an appearance of like a, a, a spirit or something, in bodily form like a dove, and from that point on, uh, in Christian art down through the centuries, the Holy Spirit is depicted as a dove, right? Not that he is a dove, but he took on this, this form, and notice the voice from heaven, you are my beloved son. And, you know, uh, we can say the same thing, or uh, God, I guess you might say, would say the same thing today every time someone is baptized, right? You might say, you are my beloved son or daughter, in the case of a girl, uh, with whom I am well pleased, right? And so let me ask you this now. Did Jesus need to be baptized did he need to repent? No. And John the Baptist knew that. I, didn't, I, I said in Matthew, they, he recognizes, you know, I, I am unworthy, right? He even admits it here, even earlier than this. Why then was Jesus baptized? Why did he go down into that water and why was he baptized? Well, by going down into that water and being baptized, he is identifying with sinners with with us right with all sinners and he's going to continue to do that even though he is without sin and had no need of repentance whatsoever he is going to continue to do that and ultimately is going to do that where on the cross right where he not just identifies with us but takes our sin and becomes sin for us on the cross and so right here, standing in the waters of the Jordan, he is identifying with all of us, all who need to repent. And it starts out from there. And again, you just get this, even if you didn't know what was going to happen, you get this idea here that something big is starting, that God is starting something new here. This would, of course, be his anointing that is spoken of. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, especially in the, in the book of Isaiah, he's anointed uh, with the Spirit, and he begins now his three-year earthly ministry that will, of course, culminate at the cross 
and ultimately again at the empty tomb, and then 40 days after that, he ascends into heaven. So that's what is going to mark the beginning, is this baptism in the Jordan River. Also, I guess we could say, too, that by Jesus being baptized, he is, you might say, endorsing baptism. Uh, He is especially the baptism of John here, that it is a good thing, that it is not to be avoided. And there's certainly that aspect of it as well. But primarily is identifying with sinners here as he does this. Okay? Um, My beloved son, that's a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And with you I am well pleased, Isaiah 42, verse 1. God is quoting there again as well. Isaiah 42 about the suffering servant. Okay? So... uh, Uh, Kind of important, and next week that'll be the focal point, Jesus' baptism, but we'll be talking about our baptism as well, all right? Okay, we got uh, some time left. Any questions before we go to Romans chapter 6? Any questions on the Luke 3 and the baptism of Jesus? All right, let's go to Romans 6, and this will be the epistle lesson uh, for next Sunday, and... uh, This now, what Paul is going to be addressing here is, how should we then live now? He's taken five chapters and talked about the fact of how uh, the sinners have strayed from God. We are saved by grace through faith alone, not because of works. He runs that through several chapters. Uh, Chapter 5 talks about, again, we're justified and how God loves us and has sent his son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Now, starting in chapter 6, he's going to talk about how should we then live as the baptized people of God. Now, he starts off with a, with a rhetorical question, and uh, let's talk about this in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. All right, let's stop there for a second. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? So, in other words, Paul is asking here, you know, if it is true, like we've been saying for the first five chapters in Romans, that we're saved by God's grace alone, his undeserved, unmerited love, should we sin more in our lives now so that God could exercise his grace even more? And uh, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? That kind of logic? I'd give God, I'd give God a chance to exercise his grace even more. Well, obviously, that's kind of... Uh, I hope it's rhetorical, right? By no means. You know, it's kind of like, like saying, uh, you know, should I run my car into a tree so that, so that the first responders can get more practice at, at saving people? Or should I start my house on fire so the fire people can get more practice and exercise the, their skills more? Well, of course not, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's illogical, and Paul knows that, of course. He's, he's pointing to something that's totally illogical. So, yes, we... We, just the opposite is going to be the case. Now that we have experienced God's grace, he says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, we use that phrase sometimes, died to sin. And one of our early church fathers wrote something that uh, really helped explain this to me. So first of all, let's just establish this. Does a dead person respond to something? You talk to a dead person, I've never seen one respond. I don't know about you. 
but you, they are, and we say that we have died to sin. What are we saying when sin comes talking to us? We don't what? So we're talking about the ideal condition here, okay? That in God's grace, we have died to sin. In other words, we, uh, sin is death to us. We don't, we don't respond to it anymore. We don't, it's the opposite of living for sin, right? There are, in our old nature, and there are some people who, uh, unfortunately, uh, today even, live for sin. That their, their main desire is to sin and to receive uh, that, that uh, uh, evil pleasure, let's just say, in their lives. The Christian life, Paul is saying, is just the opposite. We have died to sin. We are dead as far as sin is concerned. We don't respond to it anymore. How can we still live in it if we have died to sin? Well, it's, it's again, the obvious point here. We don't. It's, it's contrary to, to everything we've done and know. Uh, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Huh. That's a pretty profound statement. So in baptism, we are connected to Christ, and that connection is so close, so seamless, that Christ's death on the cross is what? Is our death on the cross. He died for us on that cross. Notice the connections that are made here. Notice how many times Paul in these verses, there are four times, uses the phrase with him or with something. Notice verse 4. We were buried therefore with him. Okay? So his death on the cross is our death on the cross. His burial in the tomb is our burial in the tomb. Skip down to verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his. And then we will certainly be what? United with him in a resurrection like his. Go down to verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. There it is again. Go down to verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Okay, I know I sound like a broken record here, but Paul's whole point here in these verses is that baptism connects us inextricably, inseparably <laughs> with Christ and with every aspect of what Christ has done for us. His death on the cross is our death on the cross. His burial in the tomb is our burial in the tomb. His resurrection from the dead is our resurrection from the dead. It's all ours in and through baptism. Okay? And so uh, next week, uh, at least here at St. Paul's, we're going to be talking about how baptism connects us with Christ. That that's what in our lives connects us with him so seamlessly that it's almost as if we were there, well, we, we, we talk this way, don't we? Vicariously, we, we sometimes speak of Christ uh, being vicariously going through all this for us. We weren't there, but it's as if we were. It's, it's so close and so seamless, okay, that we are connected with him 
in and through baptism. Okay? And uh, uh, verse 5 is one that I have written on uh, cards and I've put in emails and uh, said to people uh, when they have lost a loved one. It is a great verse of comfort that if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that points the grieving person to the fact that that person who died uh, was, was a baptized believer in Christ. And that baptism connected that person to the death and the resurrection of Christ. And they will, since they shared in a death like his, will share in a resurrection like his as well. And that's the great hope. And, you know, that is the connection between uh, baptism and the resurrection. Uh, we here at St. Paul's and many Lutheran churches, when we have a casket in the church and there is a funeral service, you may have noticed that there is a white covering over that casket. It's called a funeral pall, P-A-H-L, and it is white, and it has a red, at least the one here has a bright red large cross over the top, and that white pall is to remind us that that person who is now died, soul is with the Lord, but is a baptized Christian, and the white symbolizes what? Their purity, the righteousness of Christ with which they were clothed and are still clothed. And in a real sense, the baptismal service is the ultimate culmination, or the funeral service is the ultimate culmination of the baptismal service. Uh, watch here at St. Paul's again, you attend a funeral here, the very first words after the invocation that we, that we say, that the pastor says, is that this person, we name the name, was baptized. And that's very intentional. We're picking up where the baptismal service left off and saying right here and now is the fulfillment of what God promised in that, that person in their baptism. It is a beautiful connection between the two. And we get it from passages such as this, that we share in a resurrection like his in and through our baptism, okay? All right, so we won't uh, go any more uh, here. We're out of time, and uh, those of you here at St. Paul's will hear a little bit more about these verses next week anyway. So we'll stop here and uh, close in. Let's close with the benediction then. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.